Hello and welcome to the DC Wash-Up. It is season number three for us of the podcast and kind of season three for the Trump administration. Uh, I'm producer Roscoe Whalen and joining me in the studio is North America Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel. Greetings. <laughs> welcome back from some vacation. Excited? <laughs> Happy 2018. Ex- what will it bring? Exactly. And North America correspondent Connor Duffy. Happy New Year. And we have a special guest in the studio today. He is the White House Bureau Chief for Voice of America. Uh, He's been covering the Trump administration for the past year, formerly at State Department, formerly in Japan, formerly in Thailand. He's been everywhere. It is Steve Herman. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so it's, uh, you were just saying before, you're coming up on a year kind of covering the Trump administration. And I guess that's kind of the theme of today's podcast is reflecting on one year of Donald Trump in office, which we are celebrating on Saturday, which will be the actual anniversary. I feel a little bit like it's Groundhog Day. We're seeing Donald Trump going to the Pentagon today. Zoe, you're gearing up to cover women's marches again this weekend. Um, Russia investigation ongoing. Are we going to see a change at all, do you think, this year, or are we just going to go through the motions of what we did already in 2017? Well, I must say, having just had three weeks off, I came back to D.C. to see Donald Trump tweeting uh, and sort of in the middle of the uh, shithole storm, if we could call it that, (laughs) and I thought, this really hasn't moved on much at all, has it, in 12 months? I, I really feel that we've been sort of stuck Uh, where we started. And I'm not convinced that there's been any real progress. Uh, There's been obviously a lot of infighting in the White House. There's been a lot of fighting between the White House and the media. Uh, Those two things continue. Uh, I don't feel like the administration's yet really settled in one year in. Um, and I'm not convinced that there are any signs that they will uh, because we still see that pattern of Donald Trump lashing out when he's criticised, seemingly on on policy positions, trying to patch holes, um, difficulties getting things through Congress, um, and just a a sort of general lurching from one crisis to another after a year of the Trump administration. Whether that will settle down in 2018, I don't know, but I'm not convinced that it will. Steve, do you want to gaze into the crystal ball for what awaits Donald Trump's administration this year? Well, I think last year everybody was uh, sort of expecting and many people hoping that he would change, that he would become more presidential. And it does appear now that um, he's not going to change. I think we can make a be confident in predicting we're not uh, going to see a change. And he feels quite emboldened. And uh, Donald Trump and there are others in the West Wing who actually feel that things are going swimmingly and uh, they are well along the way to achieving their goals and it's full steam ahead and uh, there is uh, no reason for uh, Donald Trump to uh, modify his behavior. And uh, even those who would like him to modify his behavior, uh, I think, have accepted in the West Wing, you're not going to get Donald Trump to change at 71. Donald Trump is the most unpopular president in modern political history in America. But, Connor, you've come back from Arizona where you were just a week ago talking to some of those diehards. You know, it's a county where Donald Trump won over 80 percent of the vote. How are they feeling a year on with how Donald Trump's fared? 
absolutely enthused and over the moon um, is the short answer, while the rest of the world is kind of looking on in horror. Um, They're absolutely thrilled. They have a president that they feel is talking about their issues that they feel has completely changed the conversation from the things that were being talked about under President Barack Obama. Um, Totally newly emboldened. It was interesting while we were there, we left on New Year's Day and ever the foolish optimist was thinking that perhaps things were going to go in a smoother direction in the White House. Um, and by day, by the 3rd of January, um, the wheels had completely fallen off again. The Fire and Fury book was out. It was complete Groundhog Day. And for everyone that survived the first year of the Trump administration, I feel like we lived seven years in one. So by the end of this month, we already feel like August. Um, by, so true. It's by a cold day, summer. day three, that was happening. And then we met up with a group of the president's real diehard fans that night and was thinking, oh, I wonder, you know, maybe the Fire and Fury, Bannon, uh, they're very much in the alt-right, the Bannon fallout might affect how they think. And they just threw Bannon under the bus and we're like, the president's doing brilliantly, he's expendable, the president's not. Um, we're getting exactly what we voted for and we'd vote for him again in an instant. So I, I think that that was very significant because what Steve Bannon was propagating and what he was hoping is that Trumpism wasn't Donald Trump. It was about this um, this rebellion, a revolution. And it very clearly emerged that uh, the supporters who put Donald Trump in office put Donald Trump in office. And whatever uh, delusions of grandeur Steve Bannon had about he could pick up this mantle and maybe even become president, uh, it did emerged that that was something really delusional. It's interesting having spent some time outside the US in the last few weeks. And obviously, when you go to Australia, you get um, a lot of questions from people along the lines of what on earth is going on (laughs) over there. People are still very much viewing it as this sort of bizarre reality TV show playing out on the world stage and, and thinking perhaps that there will be some sort of cataclysmic event which will result in Donald Trump being impeached or somehow not being president uh, anymore. But also on the way back from Australia, I spent some time in Colorado and most of the people I spoke to were also viewing it in this sort of almost voyeuristic way to say, isn't it? just bizarre what's going on in our country. This is the new normal. But even if there were opponents of Donald Trump, which many were, sort of accepting that this is how it's going to be for a while. People have gotten used to this sort of chaotic approach to to governing uh, that the administration has. There doesn't seem to be within America, to me, an expectation that he'll be going anywhere anytime soon. Um, and people are just trying not to watch the TV and read the newspapers <laughs> if they're not Donald Trump supporters. Steve, how lasting do you think the chaos of Donald Trump will be beyond his own presidency in terms of, I'm thinking as well, Connor going to Arizona, interviewing Sheriff Joe Arpaio, who's now launched a Senate bid. This Trumpism and this idea, how far do you think that's pushed America in that direction and how hard will it be to reel back to normalcy as we once knew it? This is something I I am constantly discussing with people and whether we ever will see a kind of quote-unquote normalcy in American politics again. And I think what has emerged and what we also saw with the Democratic presidential 
uh, race as well, is this is not only a movement on the right, there's also a movement on the left. And we are going to see candidates of every stripe who are unconventional, people that never thought that they could be president or senator or a congressperson or mayor or even dog catcher now <laughs> contesting for public office in this country. And those who can also capture that lightning in a bottle that Donald Trump did with his effective use of not only traditional media, but also social media will emerge. When you had a case where Jeb Bush who was the governor of Florida and from a, a, a political family, spent $100 million and barely registered uh, on the radar versus Donald, somebody like Donald Trump, who really didn't spend any money but knew how to control conventional and social media, that is a sea change. There's some good things about that, I think, um, much as – you obviously lose the expertise of people who are experienced politicians or policymakers in various forms. There's, it, it's not a bad thing to introduce new blood into politics. And I think this is something that we've seen in Australia over time too, that those who are governing tend to come through student politics, right. become policy advisors and political apparatchiks, eventually then become MPs. And you don't get any real people who are actually understanding what people need. Right. And I think what we saw with Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders is the people that supported them felt that they were seeing the real person, that there wasn't this traditional polished political filter. And as journalists, I mean, we've all seen that. We we talk to these people off the record. We know what they're really like. But anytime the camera comes on or they're before a microphone, there's uh, almost this cardboard cutout mm -hmm. of them uh, speaking in uh, well-rehearsed lines. So, yes, a lot of people, I think perhaps the majority in this country now see those types of people running as politicians as refreshing. Yeah, I think the idea of the polished politician who avoids scandal is dead. We saw this week with um, President Trump and the Stormy Daniels scandal didn't even register. This is like mm. a president cheating on his wife, uh, you know, with, there's some credibility to the allegations, but we'll say that they're allegations still. Um, you know, not long after the birth of his son, a Republican president, and that just has not even registered as an issue. I think people more and more want authenticity. They want someone who appeals to their own views and the idea of reaching out to the centre seems to be dying, that we're getting more and more fragmented and more and more, um, you know, t true believers on either the left or the right. You could argue that's making America more European in a sense, you know, where... Berlusconi era. And, and, and as we usually see in France, or, and it just doesn't become really a, a political factor. And so, that, but that's an interesting paradox because you have in the conservative movement this evangelical Christian, very powerful force, which has morality front and center. And so there is a controversy now among evangelicals about is it hypocritical to ignore this type of behavior? Donald Trump supporters throughout, as far as I've, I've, I'm concerned, have been able to tolerate his various weakness, weaknesses for the sake sure. of what they perceive as his strengths. Even throughout the campaign, you would say to them, well, but what about 
this that he supposedly did or that or this that he said or his behaviour in relation to that. And they will say, well, yeah, I don't really like that, uh, but I like these things about him enough for me to turn a blind eye yeah, to it. Definitely. And that seems that to continue. Arizona as well when I was mm. speaking to the Trump. They were like, you know, they were very open about his personal failings, about even about the chaos in office, about the, um, you know, his personal life. But they were like, it, it doesn't matter. Look past that. Because we are. We're looking at what he's doing for us and we finally have someone who speaks for us. And so we, d- we don't care about that. And yet, Steve, I mean, what, what has Donald Trump actually done for people since he's been president because Donald Trump's supporters that I'm speaking to are saying, look what a great job he's doing. Look at all these things he's doing for us. And yet when we've gone to uh, the Carrier Corporation, for example, where he vowed to save jobs from going to Mexico, hundreds of jobs have gone anyway. Uh, In coal, mines are still closing, those sorts of things. Why, Why do people perceive that he is achieving things for them, and what are those They things? believe or want to believe what he is saying, and he is taking credit for a lot of things, which if you go and talk to economists, they'll say, well, actually, these are effects of policies that were implemented in the Obama administration, uh, but he will cite all sort of statistics uh, about the number of illegal aliens uh, entering this country, are down, the stock market boom. Uh, So I think that is what his supporters want to see. And so the statistics are there and Donald Trump is telling them that. And media outlets such as Fox News, Breitbart, uh, Drudge Report um, are also uh, falling into line on that. If there's going to be disillusionment, it will probably be a year or two down the line when those jobs don't appear. So he, I think, still has a tremendous length of runway uh, before we find out whether Trump re-election has a a healthy flight or not. Another thing I wanted to touch on in terms of Donald Trump's legacy so far is obviously this ongoing war with the media. And last night we had the highly anticipated – Fake News Awards, which turned out to kind of be fake, fake news awards. Connor, you were covering this. How do you think Donald Trump's playing the media off of, you know, his comments by by announcing this kind of spectacle that didn't really happen in the end? Was he just trolling the media? Well, firstly, I just want to express my extreme disappointment that we didn't get the awards for a minute. Someone who created The Apprentice, surely he could create a made-for-TV moment for his awards. You, you did win an award. If you look at number 11... It was it was the whole Russia collusion. So Russia. anybody who's <laughs> reported on Russia collusion right. was a winner. That's right. <laughs> um, but yeah, in terms of the media, um, the war on the media, I think it's a very easy war for the president to play for a couple of reasons. Firstly, media is always traditionally unpopular. We generally rank um, among used car salesmen in terms of mm-hmm. public trust. So he's he's tapping into something that's already there. It also plays to his supporters who the media tends to um, lean more liberal and PC and they're told that their issues aren't things that people can talk about as much, like illegal immigration. So it fires up his base and it also creates for him, I think, a siege mentality with his supporters of like, you need to stick with me. We're in this together. We're succeeding um, despite all these existential threats from these people who want to shut us down. And it really binds people around him, I think. 
Steve, how would you rate the performance by the media, the mainstream media in general, in America covering this first year of Donald Trump's administration? Is there validity to some of the claims that he makes? I think definitely we have seen among some of the media an adversarial relationship that is deliberate and could be argued that uh, there is some quote-unquote bias. I mean, this is very uh, subjective when you're trying to analyze media coverage anyway. But what I was out of the United States for 25 years uh, until 2016, and what I did notice when I came back is that the media landscape had totally changed, especially if we're talking about broadcast media, because uh, what had happened in this country with... uh, not to get too wonky, but uh, the repeal of something called the Fairness Doctrine, where if you used to have um, a program like this uh, overcoming over the airwaves, it could not be unbalanced. You had to give equal time if there was a complaint that you were a a mouthpiece of the Democrats or the Republicans or any other um, uh, position on, on on a big issue. And so for a quarter of a century, and I've seen this with my own family members who would listen to particular types of program programs every day for years and years and years, their political views solidified, echoing what they were hearing every day from their favorite programs. And we've seen that now spill over to television. I can remember when uh, my joke is MTV used to have uh, music and CNN used to have news. And uh, admittedly, for large portions of the day on CNN, MSNBC and, and Fox, they're not reporting news like we used to report news where you'd go out and do a package and carefully balance the story. Now you'll see some Q&A live uh, reports between an anchor and uh, the, the correspondent and a panel that will come in. And the panels, depending on the network, tend to uh, – there, there may be a, a sort of a straw – man Token, to knock yeah. down from from the other side of the political spectrum. Uh, I, I don't think those people get paid enough to, to go on those <laughs> sort of programs. But uh, it, it is definitely we can say um, um, that this is a phenomenon. Now, this also was the case in the Obama administration, too, where you had certain media outlets that were very harsh on uh, Obama, and there was no objectivity there. Now it's flipped around, and um, uh, there was a statistic just came out. I think it's a poll by NPR uh, that during the Obama administration, 60 70 percent of the people thought that the country was going in the wrong direction. That percentage has stayed, but the people who are responding to that the same way are now on the other side of the political spectrum. What about the midterms? What's your expectation of whether that will shift the dynamic? Well, Democrats, of course, are expressing a, a tremendous amount of hope, but uh, the, the the margin looks thin right now. And my caveat on that, of course, in even in a normal administration, we would expect in the midterms that there would be a shift that the party that's in power loses seats to the party that's out of power. So that's definitely the expectation. My caveat on that is, number one, between now in November 
is a very long time. There is a, a there are a lot of things that could possibly happen that could sway voter sentiment in one direction or the other. The other significant factor is if you're looking at con- congressional districts in the United States, what the, the Republican Party did, much to its credit over the quarter of a century that I was out of the country, they put a lot of money and a lot of effort into state assembly races, attorneys general in the states, and governor races so that they could gerrymander these districts and have protection for them. Democrats do gerrymandering, too, when they're in in power. But the Republicans saw this as a major strategic initiative and implemented that. So a lot of districts are not competitive for the Republicans because what they would do in a state is say, okay, these urban areas uh, for minority voters with the consent, in some cases, of congressional representatives – We'll give you these districts. This is going to be your district. It's going to be safe forever. But we're going to take these other 12 or 13 districts for us. Um, and, and that's what's happened. So will they get enough votes? I, would, I think all of us would be shocked if the Democrats don't pick up seats. But will they pick up enough seats that they can take the House? And even if they take the House, because there's this expectation – among Democrats and opponents of Trump that, oh, you know, this will change everything and we'll get Donald Trump out of office. Well, think about it. Even if a Democratic-controlled House of Representatives were to impeach Donald Trump, what does that really change? Wouldn't he wear that as a badge of honor? I mean, Bill Clinton got impeached. Didn't, didn't cost him the presidency. Yeah, and if anyone had any concerns about Donald Trump's health, apparently he's fighting fit and he will last the whole eight years. That was amazing. And, but I, <laughs> to his credit, I have to say that um, um, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who's a rear admiral in the United States Navy, and I've never heard anybody anywhere on the political spectrum question his integrity, came out there the other day and for one hour answered every question. They released a, a document that had more lab results than than I've ever seen uh, <laughs> about a president. Um, and uh, if and, and I don't think uh, anybody reasonable would accuse the White House physician of, of fudging the numbers. There was some suggestion that there should be a live weigh-in of the president. <laughs> and, and we thought here that perhaps there could be an episode of The Biggest Loser or a series of The Biggest Loser <laughs> run out of the White House within this existing sort of um, reality TV show Spin-off. that we're all living in. There could be a second reality TV show. Anything is possible. <laughs> you know, we'll just House. continue on from Michelle Obama's healthy eating program, be the White House trying well, to yeah. make America healthier. Can you see Donald Trump doing that sort of dancing? <laughs> no, no. And also, too, the fact that the president's in as good a health as he is with the diet that he has, or at least what's come out in the various books about him, including the Corey Lewandowski book, which he hasn't disputed that his McDonald's order is two fillet of fish and two Big Macs. Right. Mm. But no alcohol, no cigarettes, no drugs. So his only toxin is junk and, food. And, and combined with genetics, I think that is what really makes the difference. I, I'm sure nutritionists across the country were just 
almost in tears when they <laughs> saw the results of, of this. Warning to the listeners, please don't take yeah. up Donald Trump's <laughs> diet. It's probably not for the best. Uh, that's probably about all we have time for today. Thanks so much for coming in, Steve. We My really pleasure. appreciate your insight. Sure. Zoe, Anytime. Connor. Cheers. That Thanks was great. as always. Thank you. And up. we'll talk to you again next week. <laughs>